The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. We are joined today by a really special guest. He runs, and uh, let me know if you can think of anything else inside Google that is not under his umbrella, but search ads, commerce, maps, payments, and Google Assistant. I'm talking about none other than Prabhakar Raghavan, Google's Senior Vice President for all of the above. Prabhakar, welcome to the show. Hey, Alex, uh, thanks for having me on your show. And it's a super exciting time with our search on event uh, with so much to share. Uh, I'd love to share more about it today. Also, I hope we, we hear uh, some details that, that you haven't presented today. Just for listeners' uh, edification, we're getting Prabhaka right basically hot off stage uh, at, at Search On, which, which has just t- taken place. And then this, this pod goes basically as, as the uh, folks get off stage. So um, it's a big event that Google uses to talk about search. So over the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to talk about, you know, is there actually any, any innovation in search? Um, what's happening with maps? And then um, some of the themes that we like to talk about more on the show, um, broader market outcomes. And, you know, maybe uh, we get some hints about where everything else is going uh, because Prabhakar has so much visibility into a lot of the worlds of tech. So let's talk about search to start. Okay. If that sounds good. Great. Okay. So you just did a search event. And the natural question that I ask is, why, why are we doing an event for search? Because you know, search, of course, there's been innovation in search. Maybe the algorithms get better. But at the end of the day, the way that we're searching today is very similar to the way that we, we started when Larry and Sergey you know, founded Google, where you write what you need to find into a search bar, and then you get these links. Okay, maybe a little bit more information. But the biggest innovation I heard about um, search is now that people are searching on, on TikTok when they're trying to find stuff. So from your vantage point, where is the motion? Where's the movement in search right now? I think the biggest motion, uh, I'm glad you appealed to our founders to begin with. So they laid down the mission to make information universally accessible and useful. But the way we pursued that mission has been exactly like you said. We've kept users in a box. It's a text box. And we've conditioned users over the last two decades to express themselves really precisely. And when they do, we give them the perfect answer. The world has moved on in a couple of respects. Number one, increasingly, there's user intents that don't have the single right answer that has to go on top. Right? Uh, so that's one way things have changed. Can you give an example of that before we move on to the more fundamental yeah. issue? Uh, let me give you two examples since you asked for one. Uh, the first is if you ask the query yellow dress, your intent is to find yellow dresses. There isn't the world's best yellow dress followed by the second best yellow dress and so on. Uh, mm. What we should be offering you is a palette of choices and then iteratively adapting to your taste. Right? Uh, this means we're going to have much more visually rich, immersive experiences where you browse through a large number of results. It's no longer about what we used to call precision at one, which is, you know, you have to nail the right answer on top. So that's one example. 
second example, uh, dinner seating arrangements at a wedding. There is no right answer for that, but there's a plethora of opinions and a lot of good information out there from people's, so a lot of knowledge in people's heads that is captured in discussions, forums, etc. And we need to do a much better job and have been improving our focus on elevating the highest quality of that content. So that's two examples of going beyond you know, the single right answer. Yeah, it's surprising to me that you want people to spend more time in search. Typically, like the idea was get them to the most relevant website right away. Is that no longer the case? You know, the examples I gave you aren't particularly about keeping them on or off. Uh, mm. If it's wedding seating arrangements, you're off to finding the best ideas, but you will go back and forth. Uh, so it's not about time spent. right? Uh, but let me get to the, the second, I think, deeper point yeah. underlying your first question, right? which is over the last two decades, we've, we've trained users to that if they express the query perfectly, we'll nail the answer. Uh, but that's the box we have to get out of. And over the last two decades, network and storage costs have come down, which has the implication that it's easier than ever to create and, and disseminate rich content, whether it's videos, images, etc. Right? What that means is people should be able to express their interests much more multimodally and get responses that are much more uh, multimodal. One immediate consequence or consequence we've developed over the last few years technically, but this is what you hear a lot about from our search on announcements, which you just heard. The camera is your new keyboard. The camera is a new keyboard, meaning instead of forcing the user to type the intent in a particular way, you can just hold up your camera and capture this, express this intent that is so hard to put into words. And with that, uh, you're off to the races. Being able to append to that text, voice, et cetera, you can express yourself much more richly. And that's what we're after. How does that work when you're searching? So just thinking about the natural way of doing things. Yeah. I like never will like point a camera at something and be like, you know, this is usually my, if I'm at, if I'm using a camera, I'm at my destination. Search I use as a point of trying to figure out, you know, I'm at the, the earlier stages of discovery. So you're walking along the street, right? Let me give you two examples. Just You're just out there in the street, right? Uh, you walk by a store. Normally you window shop. Now you can point your camera and summon up exactly the thing that you see in the window and say, oh, that's what that is, right? Learn more about it, right? Uh, so that's one use case. The second use case, which you just also announced at <laughs> um, Search On, Imagine holding up that camera in a busy street in Tokyo and saying, I'm looking for a coffee shop that's not too busy right now. That is the capability we're bringing with the live view and maps, right? So the camera now becomes an input modality that is far more powerful than your destination, right? It's already been underway, Alex, for the last, I would say, five years with lens usage having grown to over 8 billion queries a month with us. So it's not a new... How does that compare to, to to type queries? So 8 billion queries on Google Lens? Still small, but growing... Less. Yeah. It's, yeah, but growing many-fold faster, right? So that the point is, especially with younger users, these newer modalities are the ones that are taking off because these are users who weren't trained to search the old-fashioned way, like you and I. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely in the old-fashioned search way. So 
you'll excuse me if my bias is to the old way. It, t- it does take me some time to figure out the new way. But let, let's go back. Uh, let's let's keep on this um, line of thinking. So talking about you know discovery versus you're already there. So, okay, now we're into maps, right? It doesn't seem to me like when you're searching a map. So maps are obviously a big part of Google search now. Um, even though people might think of it as a map program, it's a search program. But it, when when I'm trying to find a coffee shop, I, I if I, I if I type in coffee shop, I can see all the the little red, uh, you know, um, what do they call them? Placer pointers, placers, with Pins, with the whatever the coffee shops, the star rating. That's pretty efficient. And in one view, I'm already basically looking at my options. Yeah. When I, and, and I, you know, Google's been talking about use the camera to search, you know, use lens. Eight billion is not, eight billion series queries a day. Not bad. Yeah. How long, how often is it? Uh, eight billion a month. A month. Not bad. But I think with most users, especially we're talking most of the globe, not on fast internet speeds, not on fast phones. So it ends up being this much clunkier experience where, you know, I could have typed, it takes me maybe, you know, five to 10 seconds to query something on maps as it is today. If I want to load the camera and then try to get it connected, have, have these, you know, augmented reality features catch, that takes so much more time. So I understand that Google, you know, is taking advantage of the fact that we have higher processing speeds, you know, more data, all that stuff. But when the rubber meets the roads, I wonder if that's, you know, what's actually happening for the average user. Let me give you a couple of data points. Uh, 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 uh. Two data points to to sort of set that nice. straight, right? Yeah, crush me and, on this one. Yeah, <laughs> in many locales with new internet users, right? Uh, text is not the dominant form of interaction, right? In India, one in three queries is voice already, okay? Which means we have to get the audio voice rec and regurgitate results. So people have already moved beyond text in those locales. That's because of what we started with. These are users who were never trained to do the traditional Google two, two keyword search. Number one. Number two, I'd argue that the comment about, you know, networks are slow and mm-hmm. so on. Yeah. Was true maybe five to 10 years ago. But in a lot of the newer markets that kind of skipped a generation of telecoms, right? Uh, they've gone to such high-speed internet. Like if you've seen what Reliance has done in India and Africa and so on. Uh, that, so I don't think it's bandwidth is long, no longer a constraint. This is the point I was making. Networking has gotten cheaper, faster than computation. So computation is, re- is really still the thing that holds us. And that's why you see us and others putting more computation on the phone. Mm-hmm. So this overhead that you're thinking of, like, well, I have to fire up a camera, insert <laughs> IR, the, you know, the, the kit, uh, all of that is pretty instantaneous right now, even on a, what you would consider a low-end phone in an emerging market. Last thing I'll add is, remember, we're talking about users. I said they're not used to the traditional Google search. They also have never seen a paper map. So why, why would you make them look at a paper map and search one when you can just hold this thing up it's almost like you're looking at the mm-hmm. world naturally yeah. and intuitively and make it work the way we think as humans. So let me take one more swing at, at standing up and making the case for the paper map. <laughs> and uh, all right, so here, here it is. The paper map allows me to search four, five, six, seven, ten blocks away. Yeah. You know, maybe a half mile if I'm thinking about walking. The augmented reality, point your phone somewhere, 
you know, it's generally like what's it, you have a really hard time building a UI where you can see what, you know, I'm at a coffee shop that's four and a half stars. But if I were to walk 10 minutes, I'm going to get to the 4.9 star. And with a paper map, that's easy to see with the, with uh, the augmented reality stuff, not so much. So, so how do you respond to that um, piece of advocacy I'm doing for the old, old school style? <laughs> Uh, so uh, let me give you a response that's actually built into our uh, AR directions product, right? If you come out of the subway in London, Tokyo, New York, even where you are, right? My, my biggest challenge visiting these places is I am headed for that restaurant 10 blocks from the subway station. I don't know which way to go. I hold up the phone and it shows me the first step, go this way first and that. that. So it's not like it has to be direct line of sight for me. But the 10 block away restaurant is represented to me in a different way than the paper map, right? And I understand that if you've grown up with a paper map, it might be somewhat intuitive, but it's almost as easy to hold this thing up and say, well, start by going up there and then we'll tell you what's next, right? So it is a different, you're right that it's a different UI. Uh, you're right, it takes more imaginative work from a design perspective. I'm not convinced that from a, cognitive load on the user, it's worse. I actually think people get acclimatized to it pretty well. All right, let's talk about form then. Because when I hear your talk about, hey, Google, instead of necessarily being, you know, 2D is really overlaid over the 3D world, I think to myself immediately, how does Google move to its next iteration without being an augmented reality company? And it's interesting because you have Snap, clearly an augmented reality company. That's what they say on their branding. Um, Meta used to be Facebook. Now it's Metaverse. That includes AR. We have Apple. We know Apple is working on these AR glasses. Are they ever going to ship them? That's another question. Maybe you have some intel on that. We can ask you about that. Um, Google's tried, right? We know know Google Glass has um, tried and failed, but it seems to me like it would be in Google's interest to take another very big swing very soon. What do you think about that? So, uh, you began by saying these are all augmented reality companies. I, th- I think our first and foremost objective is to be an information company, to do whatever it takes to get the user and facilitate their interaction with the user as well as possible. If that in the current technology requires augmented reality, great. We're starting with the phone. And as headsets move from being clunky, you know, one pound things that hang off your face to something more usable, Right. The nice thing about glass, Alex, if you remember, was it didn't feel like an appendage, right? Uh, it, it was just there. Maybe. Well, maybe you say, but uh, right? In comparison with some of the things yeah. you're seeing, right? Uh, but necessarily that limited the amount of compute and even networking that was available from those devices. As miniaturization proceeds, we're going to see those trends get to the point where these Appended devices are actually much more lightweight and usable. And we're all in, you know, looking at that hard. That doesn't make us an AR company. We will let the core remain an information company. Okay. So you're going to, I mean, you've already previewed these glasses. Um, how important of initiative are they uh, inside Google? AR glasses. You know, look, we, we're conducting research in a lot of areas. Uh, and uh, Let me put it another uh, way. Do you want do you want maps and search to be a application on let's say Apple's device or do you want it to be something contained within a Google ecosystem because 
you did do Android, right? Android, the mobile operating system has paid off really well for, for Google and the, the native Gmail, the native Android. I mean, the native maps, the native assistant, oh, you know, some of these products very core to your portfolio benefit a lot from having the big app and the operating system. When it comes to augmented reality, do you want that type of thing? Are you, are you content being an app on, let's say, the Apple glasses? Well, uh, I'll note that all of the apps you mentioned, including Gmail and Search and Maps, uh, function, I hope you'll agree well, on iOS. Uh, so it's uh, the goal of any app that ser- attempt, aims to serve all users should be platform agnostic and serve iOS users as well as Android users. The intent is not to say, okay, we're going to do better on the one platform or the other. Right? So uh, you'll see us continue to do uh you know do our best to be or to function as well on any platform okay I, I see what you're doing there's there's you know some some thought but you can't give away the whole augmented reality roadmap in one conversation but there's a reason why google did did android right of course it's fine to to operate on on uh on the iphone but you know there's something to be said for having your own operating system some of your competitors, Meta, for instance, is finding out that, that out the hard way. You'd agree, right? Uh, I'm not commenting <laughs> on what Meta strategies. I wouldn't profess to know what they want to do. Uh-huh. But for Google, there's a reason why you have an operating system. I, I think to the extent it facilitates delivering the best end-to-end experience, right? that is the ultimate goal, right? If we can actually make it work really well for the user, great, right? And no, pro, uh, and it goes back to ultimately we are an information company and that's what we want to service, right? It's yeah. not like we have to be an operating system company or an AR company. We are an information mm-hmm. company and that's our bread and butter that we hope to keep doing really well. Interesting. You know, when we talk about, it seems like I'm hearing a theme here, right? When you talk about the way that people are going to search, the way people might use maps, is that they're interacting with um, search in a more human type of focused way, right? We call it it's natural not, and intuitive. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Or yeah, same same idea, right? You're instead of typing in um, you know, one or two words, you actually maybe type in a sentence. Instead of looking on a paper map, you show maps the world around you and then it helps you make sense of it. On that note, I'm curious what you think about um and the, the innovations that we're seeing with Lambda, um, you know, we, we, Lambda's a favorite topic on on this show. Um, we had Blake. Lamont so here, uh, now that I, is a I, bit of a leap, but <laughs> let's. Uh, I'm not asking you any sentience questions because I know you don't believe it's sentient. But the idea that that um, a chatbot like Lambda um, could end up being, you know, maybe not a person, but the way that you start interacting. With Google search, search that knows you, search that can help you as a friend might. That's pretty interesting. So obviously we've heard a lot about Google Assistant. It's another product that you oversee. Um, does does Google become more, more chat-based or even more? You mentioned that one-third of uh, users in India query with, with voice. Um, it, you know, does, does Google become like super smart clippy down the road where you have just a, a conversation <laughs> with it? <laughs> You know, I, I love the way you're leading up to it. The the, the notion of a super smart clippy, I'm not so sure about. Right? Uh, but you know what I'm the, saying? Like a back and forth I, I as opposed you, to that knows you, that understands your your life. Yeah. Uh, look. Your uh, context. 
you're absolutely right that having an assistant that understands you mm-hmm. and using that understanding to condition your experience is a super interesting idea right but if you look at the current state of large language models there are at least two difficult challenges to overcome right the the first we've seen before in a number of earlier times which we call safety right how do you know that the the bot the language model doesn't drift into territory that's toxic potentially racist harms the user etc and it's a very subtle question because harm doesn't just come from one utterance right and so this is a deep question for us as computer scientists together with the colleagues in the social sciences to try and understand right and we don't have enough understanding i would say so that safety is one thing right and we have to get get this right, right? the second part is what we call factuality you know we are relied upon billions of times a day to make sure that we stick to the facts as far as we can right now it's known that large language models can sometimes hallucinate without necessarily giving any clue that they are hallucinating so if you came in and asked what's the height of the eiffel tower today we give you the answer now let's say a large language model said alex the height of the eiffel tower is 3 feet 6 inches right now if you didn't know better how could you check the factuality right so in other words that that problem of using a large language model to answer factual questions and ensuring the veracity uh, is is a hard one so these are the two really hard challenges we'll have to overcome before anything of this sort can be productized that makes sense so it might be a way down the road Yes. What did you think when one of your colleagues said that your technology was a person? You know, I, I'm thinking first of all, I see no reason to to believe that, right? My, <laughs> and uh, yeah. again, as a computer scientist, I go back to Turing's right. original test, which is can you put a machine and a human behind a screen and fool the person on the other side uh, without them knowing which one is which, right? And in many straightforward interactions, uh like you know what is the height of the eiffel tower you could probably fool them right but i would say we don't even have a full understanding of what that question means you know the the, the s word the sentient word right yeah. we're a few years from resolving that right but if you ask me today i would say there's no basis for believing that there is sentience in uh, in a language model right but also as a researcher coming from a research background google doesn't hire dumb people Right, so we try our best. <laughs> I've met many, many of your colleagues. I, I can confirm that. So, just knowing that it actually convinced someone that it was a person. If I'm from like coming from a research background, my reaction might might have just been like, "Ah, damn, our, our stuff is good." You had some of that, <laughs> definitely. But remember that uh, you know I started with arguably a simpler problem, which is the Turing test, and today that's not been convincingly passed. You can pass it in slivers, right? uh but it's not like anybody's claiming agi artificial general intelligence to the point where you can do an end to end turing test and the questions you're now asking i think are an even further step beyond which is why i think it's going to be some years before we can resolve that i i can understand a viewpoint that is well we've shown facets of intelligence or sentience i cannot make an definitive assertion that what we built is intelligent or sentient i don't think so yeah i don't i'm not i i don't think you you know 
I guess that's not what I'm getting at. But I kind of think that the interesting and the cool thing is the advance, you know, because I, we know the chatbots try to change a flight through a chatbot. You throw your phone out the window. Maybe good for Android's business, but not very good for AI. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's actually an astute observation, right? Which is uh, the progress and and the you know the flashes of brilliance these models show are actually astounding, right? Uh, I was a junior researcher at IBM when they did Deep Blue that beat chess, you know, Kasparov chess, right? And at that time, I remember, okay, chess, sure, go, never, not in my lifetime. Okay. Uh, it's completely wrong, right? It took about 20 years from then to, to get to go and deep mind, right? Uh, but along the way, I heard about the famous protein solving, uh, folding problem. And I'm like, okay, we have no clue how to solve the N body problem in protein folding. We're never going to do this, right? And guess what? Now they do alpha fold. So in each of these cases, I think there's astounding, uh, uh, advances far beyond what we predicted. And the same is true of language understanding as well in these language models. Right. Prabhakar Raghavan is with us. He's the Google SVP in charge of search, ads, commerce, maps, payments, Google Assistant. What's left of Google? I don't know. Uh, we've talked about a bunch. We've talked about, Google, we've talked about uh, search. We've talked about maps. A little bit about Assistant. When we come back after this, we're going to talk about the state of the market. And then we're going to get to a little bit more of the products that Prabhakar oversees. Back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back on the second half of Big Technology Podcast. We're joined by Prabhakar Raghavan, Google's Senior Vice President for Search Ads, Commerce, Maps, Payments, and Google Assistant. Do you, when you're in the elevator, do you try to... Someone, someone say, hey, what do you do at Google? You can't list all those by the time the floor rings, right? Uh, I, I say I'm, this, I'm a scientist working at Google. Yeah, that's much better, much better. Because then you start to end up in, in a conversation like this one. And once in a while, I imagine those are fun, but not all the time. It's fun, Alex. <laughs> fun for me too. A, a week ago, I wrote about um, some of the pullback happening, um, especially when it comes to big tech spending. Um, 
Sundar, your CEO, has talked about twenty being trying to be twenty percent more efficient. Um, we've heard conversations coming out of meetings where people are asking about perks, and he's having to double down on the fact that, like, listen, the cool thing about being at Google is you get to work on new projects. Not that you, you know, I don't know. I guess use the most cliche example: play ping pong or go down a slide. By the way, there's people, you know, from this floor going down on slides right now as we speak. <laughs> but that's good to know. I'm, I'm glad we can at least confirm slide health is is excellent slide at health Google. Vigorous. It's nice that people are back in the office. So, um, you know, I, I imagine that your pro- your projects, especially search, right? Your products, search maps, ads. These are type of things that are core that are going to get, you know, lots of investment. The thing that I wonder about is what happens to those, you know, weird projects, things that used to be common at, at Google, maybe still are, in some ways like Gmail, um, kind of builds on the side. You know, are they still going to get funding in a time where, where you know, there's a response to the market? I'm just going to read you the headline of um, my, my story last week. I'm curious if you think what you think. So the headline is Big Tech Enters a New Era of Scaled Back Ambitions as the Stock Market Contracts. Is that fair? Or do you dispute that? I cannot speak for big tech, whoever that is, but I can speak for Google. Yeah, let's uh, do that. Uh, I don't think we should be scaling back any ambition, right? Uh, at our core, there are two things I believe we've always done well. Number one, mm-hmm. move the technological needle independent of non-need. Like if you see us stamping out large language models every year, it's not because we know that, okay, this next language model is going to do this exact thing in search and so on, right? There was BERT, there's MUM, you know, Lambda, Palm, and you've seen that sequence, right? I expect that progress to continue unabated and it'll run a little ahead of product reality, right? The second thing, you know, having worked at many research labs and then come here, right? Uh, Google is pretty speedy in moving this stuff into product, right? So the BERT, motion into product, for instance, is pretty much over. Mom is having a pretty healthy run now. Uh, and all of these, if you count hey, the so years. What's that? Mom is, she's a uh, multimodal <laughs> uh, uh, user model, so something like that, right? Sorry. I, didn't okay. I mean, I just think of it as mom. Right? Yeah. Good. But it's a large uh, model that combines text, images, uh, videos, and uh across many languages. That's mom. Hmm. And that is now starting to make its way into products, right? And, and, that and how bag is that happening? Been, yeah. Uh, it's showing up, for instance, in some of the search on uh, announcements we just did around review content, right? And enhancing the fidelity of those. So uh, that motion has taken about two years, okay? And we need to keep priming the, the supply of amazing advanced technology, uh, new language models, new uh, lens technology and so on to keep uh, the, the products vigorous, vibrant, and you know, the best we can for our users. So I expect that to continue unabated. I don't think we should scale back ambitions in any way, right? You use the word, if I recall, weird, Alex. It's uh, one of my yeah favorite words on the show. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know what counts as weird. Uh, the, the way I might interpret that, and you tell me if this makes sense, is Anything, any technology that doesn't have a known purpose or path to market. Okay. Uh, and if you take that, I would assert that not only are you hearing about it, you know, at IO here and beyond at our research conferences, 
I fully anticipate you'll hear more advances in the time to come, right? When I see some of the early work coming out of research and DeepMind, I'm super excited about what's coming up. you have any good examples that you can share? Uh, I think my colleagues in research and DeepMind should be the ones to share that. Uh, it's their uh, babies. Okay. Uh, and so I think, what you're uh, saying is not, it's not public versus... It's, uh, a lot of this is not public and I expect uh-huh. the, them to keep priming the pump. Yeah, because I, I mean, I do remember when I was doing research for my book talking about, you know, the the large bets that just really had no immediate payoff. Things like natural language processing research that Google was doing um, that eventually made its way into the assistant. And if we do end up m- moving to this more conversational interface with technology versus the, you know, taps and types like that I like, um, that, that stuff that stuff is really important. Exactly. So important. And, you know, we cannot have a hiatus in that. So how do you then become, I mean, are you, are, yeah, how do you then become more efficient without risking cutting that? And, and I'll just go one step deeper. How do you keep the people that are most eager to work on the stuff that doesn't have immediate results if everything that's going on in the company, the rhetoric from the top, the market is saying profit now? Uh I don't recall us saying profit now, but I think more efficient. The, yeah. the two things you asked: how do you get more efficient? And how do you keep the best talent? I actually, have the same answer. Curiously, right? Okay. Uh, and the reason is when I talk to some of our best people, the biggest complaint I get is what they call bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is a big word, right? But it's too many layers of decision making. You know, they want to move fast, and sometimes, like, well, I have to ask this person and check. Joe over there and Mary over here and blah, 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 right? And I think there's necessary gains to be had uh, to cut through some of that. We've become a large company and there's we can definitely harvest some of the deficiency simply by making uh, streamlining a lot of our decision processes. And Sundar certainly was pointing at that and kicked off a bunch of internal sprints to actually try and clean that up. And uh, just from, well, (laughs) the the great thing is Googlers care, right? We got thousands of ideas from, you know, uh, Googlers. And here's something that's staring you in the face. Please do it, right? And we're triaging that and getting through that. I definitely anticipate we'll get a lot of that. Now, for your second part of your question, if we are successful at cleaning up this craft, then it will be the case that the most talented employees will be the ones who will want to remain right, and not be daunted by the bureaucracy they perceive. Do you think Google's moving slower today than when you joined? You know, it's very hard to say. It's I've been here a little over 10 years. And uh, the, the, the two things that survive, right, Number one, continuing to explore ideas, uh, research that seem far ahead of their time. And, you know, I gave you examples even of how I myself have been surprised by the speed at which some of this has emerged. And actually moving that stuff into, into applications, right? Because if you thought about reinforcement learning and some of that stuff, right? Yeah, it was good to when go, when it go. But then you start to see this amazing application like protein folding that comes out of some of that, right? It is mind-blowing 
uh, in the impact it can still have ahead. Mm-hmm. So, but can, can uh, you unpack that for a minute? Um, winning at Go. So we know, a lot of people know that DeepMind's technology is able to win this very difficult board game, AlphaGo. Yeah. And that, that technology was used to unpack proteins? So uh, the protein folding problem basically says, here's a molecule. It's a very big molecule. It's typically an organic molecule that's sitting somewhere in our bodies, right? Uh, what is the three-dimensional shape it falls into? Because that is key to drug discovery and, and uh, uh, you know, triaging uh, and understanding diseases, disease vectors, right? And solving that classically using methods from physics and numerical computation was solving something called an N-body problem, which we really didn't know how to do at scale. Right? And somewhat stunningly, some of the same insights and machine learning advances that help beat humans in the game of Go could now be repurposed uh, from alpha Go to alpha Fold to fold proteins. And you know, hundreds of thousands of proteins have now been successfully folded, which is like a quantum leap, right? Uh, and we put that out for availability to researchers, uh, life sciences researchers world over. And I was recently at a conference where they said every major lab in understanding diseases and finding cures is making some use of AlphaFold. And that is a very proud moment for us. Uh, and so the, the point I'm making is we want to continue pushing the frontiers because there's almost an inevitability to the applications that follow, right? Uh, and that's what uh, I think that spirit persists at Google from 10 years ago. And I don't think we're going to lose that anytime soon. I think we're still very committed to those kinds of advances. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting answer to the moving slower question, but we'll take it. The um, I got to ask you about ads. Um, okay. There's an advertising slowdown going on right now as the economy gets tougher. Um, people have started to you know, slow down their ad spend. And especially on digital advertising where you can shut it off immediately, that's where we're starting to see the biggest problems. We're seeing action from the Federal Reserve that leads us to believe that, you know, we're going to go into a deeper hole in the economy right now. As someone who's working on the ad product and sits on top of ads at Google, how do you feel about all this? And and is the slowdown as bad as people are saying? So first of all, um, there's one thing I've learned about macroeconomics is it's uncertain, mm-hmm. right? It's always uncertain. And some of the easy lines and connections you draw don't necessarily pan out exactly as expected, right? So for first example, like when, what is it now? Uh, two and a half years ago, COVID hit. Our immediate c- conclusion, not us, me, Google, but the world over was, oh my God, the world economy is going to grind to a halt. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you saw these pictures of ships stranded in ports and so on. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, selling their stock portfolios. So I hear, uh, <laughs> I haven't yeah, followed sorry. the senators closely. Right. So, uh, so that didn't quite play out with the, the way we anticipated. Right. The economy didn't collapse immediately. Right. Uh, so the, the thing I'd say is from our perspective, if we can be continue to be really good at providing value to advertisers, measurably so, right, while preserving user quality, right, that's the best thing we can do, whether in a great economy or whatever this is turning into, right, uh, this uncertainty. 
Uh, and so I, I, I don't try and draw a line from what the Fed is doing to what our products have to do. Our products always have to be best of breed. And, and that's it. And, and at Google, like, I get, I, as much as you can say, like, th- does the slowdown feel real and prolonged or you think it's overblown? Uh, I, you know, now you're t- uh, turning me into an e- uh, macroeconomics PhD, which I totally am not. Uh, uh, so, uh, so you're asking me to read the future and I don't think I'm going to try to read the future. Okay. That sounds good. Um, one of your, one of your competitors, Apple is, uh, blocking tracking in iOS or uh, enabling users to block track in language that strongly suggests they should block it. What, what do you think about that? Uh, is that a good step for privacy or is that, you know, something that you'd rather not deal with that? My understanding is it's hitting some Google products as well. Is that, is that a good example? Uh, for for the rest of the economy, or what do you think about that? So, so let me unpack a couple of layers of that. So, first of all, I think the objective of protecting user privacy and trust is is absolutely the right one, whether for them or for the whole industry. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not of the belief that privacy and advertising are at odds with each other. Right? I think it's quite feasible deliver high quality advertising while preserving user privacy. But it does take a couple of things. One, uh, the best way to provide the trust is transparency and control to users, right? Transparency in what is done with their data and control with what they'll allow and disallow. The next thing, you know, I spoke of how privacy and advertising are not at odds with each other. I think you're familiar with the privacy sandbox, which has been our proposed approach uh, to avoid tracking individual users across the web. Right? Uh, we are obviously in tests. We're working closely with partners. And so far, things are going reasonably well. The idea is to take a bunch of users who are in a cohort and treat them as one. So within that cohort, a user is anonymous. right? And say, this person is a food aficionado, and we'll show them food ads or whatever, right? The, the, the important thing, Alex, is to ensure we don't lose sight of what it takes to really provide privacy and trust. Because if you put up some pop-ups and say, well, mm-hmm. you know, we will, shouldn't track you, et cetera. But then people still feel like something weird is happening. Uh, then that deeply undercuts trust. So the example I'll give you is my wife searched for Roomba vacuum cleaners. And then for the next few days, whenever I was at home, I got ads for Roomba vacuum cleaners, okay? And the only way, conceivable way that could happen is if somebody was fingerprinting a device Mm -hmm. in the house, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that is a pretty bad practice. Uh, We do not tolerate it. We do not use fingerprinting for ad targeting or measurement. And you need to shut down those things. Uh, And that's a much deeper technical issue and ecosystem issue than some, you know, simpler solution like, hey, mm-hmm. people shouldn't track, right? Uh, and we're working on solutions, but uh, that that's what it'll take to garner user trust for privacy-safe advertising. Did you buy the Roomba? Yeah, we did buy the Roomba. Yeah, I got one uh, on Amazon Prime Day this year, and uh, I will admit I'm, I'm a Roomba-holic. I just send that thing every day. Yeah, it's pretty cool. every day. It is yeah. cool. Um, 
and and the fact that Apple's making those changes and doubling its its ad staff is that like put get your antennas up. I mean, Apple should do what Apple should do. Uh, you know, I think uh, you know. I go back to how do we deliver privacy-safe advertising uh, yeah. in a way that our users will trust us, and do everything uh, to to raise their trust, including looking at some of these surreptitious attack vectors that are out there. Are, are you satisfied um, with where with where Google is, and do you think users genuinely trust Google? Yeah, my my answer to that is. Uh, we always should do better, right? Uh, you know, nothing short of 100% trust is good enough. So when you say, are you satisfied? Uh, that's the the bar I hold my team to. Mm-hmm. And do you think people trust Google? Um, I believe people trust Google <laughs> for a lot of things. Uh, yeah. The quality of our information is unmatched and our user studies show a lot of trust. Mm-hmm. All right, we have like 60 seconds left. Um what 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 are you optimistic about? What are you most optimistic about? I have to go back to the the technology that's brewing across the community, the computer science community. You know, I don't want to be parochial about just Google, but a lot of it at Google, and the tremendous potential it has for uplifting human lives. Uh, because I really think information is empowering in a way that very few things are, and uh, the f- fact that even though we've been at this for close to 25 years, there is so much more we can do. And, you know, I, I concede, Alex, that you like the paper map better or paper like map better. But there are so many new internet users out there, young people, mm-hmm. people coming online for the first time who are looking for entirely new experiences. And technology can facilitate those now. I think that's tremendously exciting. Yeah. And look, uh, at the end of this conversation, I'll say I'm willing to try out the non-paper map. And I hope it's on glasses one day. Prabhakar, thank you for joining. This was super fun. Thanks, Alex. This was super fun for me too. Yeah, we should do it again sometime soon. Take care. All right, see you later. Bye. And that'll do it for us here on Big Technology Podcast. Thank you, Prabhakar, for joining. Always good to have someone making the decisions inside these big tech companies, giving us some of their time, helping us think about the way that they make decisions. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you, Nate Kwatney, for doing the editing. Thank you, LinkedIn, for having me as part of your podcast network. We will see you next week uh, where my interview with Francis Haugen, a person who brought forward all these revelations about Facebook and the Wall Street Journal last year. Uh, That conversation, which took place at Unfinished Live in New York City, is going to go live. It was really fun. I'm excited to bring it to you on the feed. And we have another special guest coming. All right. So if this is your first time listening, please hit subscribe. If you're a longtime listener and enjoying the show, five-star ratings on Apple or Spotify go a long way. So we'd love one of those as well. And uh, we'll see you next week. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.